so I'm just going to uh, read for us uh, from the passage this morning. Mark is going to be coming to speak to us uh, today on uh, the person of Rahab uh, in Scripture that's found in Joshua chapter 2. So if you want to follow along in Joshua chapter 2, we'll read the whole chapter. Uh, and then we will pray uh, for us and for Marcus as he comes to speak. So Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who enter your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan, as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens, above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me, my Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the man said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell us this business of ours, then... And when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go, go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made with us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills, and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way, and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over, and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father, it is a privilege to come into your presence this morning. It's the privilege to gather here to to worship you, to hear from you, to be in your presence. And Lord, in this time, we we don't want to take this time for granted. We don't want to get distracted by anything else this morning, but we want to hear from you and we want to see you this morning. We ask for you to uh, just to move among us this morning. Uh, Spirit, move in our hearts. Um, Spirit, open our ears to hear from you. Open our hearts to receive from you this morning. And uh, that is the desires of our heart as we gather. Lord, for all the, the things that are going on in uh, the world, all the things that are going on uh, in our lives, Lord, we don't uh, we don't minimize those. We don't dismiss those. But what we do this morning as we gather, we come into this space and we ask you to speak into those things, knowing that you are present with us in them. Lord, we just pray for uh, the world and pray for the, uh, pray into the, some of the fear and anxiety that is out there for people at the minute. Uh, some of the fear and anxiety um, about this virus, some of the fears and anxiety about the, the implications for, for jobs and for, for livelihoods. Uh, the implications for family, for friends, for relationships. Um, Lord, we pray against that. We pray against that fear and anxiety. We pray in your name, Jesus, uh, that your name, which is mighty to save, and your name, which is above all names, Lord, has power and is sovereign over all circumstances. And just as we gather this morning, we remind ourselves of that fact. In the light of what we'll hear this morning, we pray for for Marcus as he comes to speak and from your word I pray for the words that he has prepared and that Lord you would anoint them that you would speak through him and Lord I pray that we would be prepared to, to hear and to listen from you Lord as we are in this season of, of what is a season of hope a season of uh, reflecting back on, on your uh, birth Jesus into this world you're coming as this king in um, in a stable, Lord, born into, uh, just into the, the uh, poverty and into the uh, difficulties that you were born into, Lord, you were sovereign in all of those, even as a baby. You were sovereign long before that. You've been sovereign over all things from the beginning of time, and you will be until the end of time. So as we gather in that hopeful state, Lord, this morning, we, we look forward to the day when you come back and when fear and anxiety are no more. And Lord, we will worship you as King. Help us to do that this morning as we gather. For your glory, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Alec. Uh, good morning. Even though John hasn't been here in a while or two, this stands way too high. John would normally have a bit lower than that. So, uh, yeah, good morning, and uh, we're continuing on our uh, studies in this Advent series. Um, uh, so, over Advent, uh, Alan kicked us off last week and uh, looking at um, people in the line of Jesus. And during this Advent season, we're focusing really on uh, women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, which, as Alan said last week, was quite a, 
It's quite a strange thing for a woman to be mentioned in a, geneal in a genealogy in those days, in that culture. And yet in Matthew 1, we see four women mentioned in it. Um, and in some ways, there was, you could say there was no real obvious need to mention them. They could have just mentioned the men. But for some reason, Jesus picks out those women and mentions them. Um, and so that's what we're really looking at in this Advent season. We're going to try and focus in on those women and uh, see what we can learn from them. All right. Our purpose in looking at these uh, looking at these four women is not in any way really to elevate the women. Our, our goal in this is to elevate Jesus. That's what we want to do with everybody uh, whenever we look at them in Scripture. And so our goal is to see how we can elevate Jesus as we move to this point, as we build up and build up to this point where Jesus is born. Um, so today we're going to be yeah, in Joshua 2 looking at the life of Rahab. Now, um, I've maybe said this before, and maybe I need you know, some counseling about it, which is why I keep mentioning it, but uh, I don't know if you've ever, when you were back in the day, when you were young and being picked for teams and all, um, you've been, we are, every day this happened at school, which was never good, you know, they said, right, let's get two teams, and somebody always had the brilliant idea, right, so get two people, two captains to pick, you two pick the day. Every time I heard that line, it was like, my heart sank, I think, going to be last picked again, last picked again. I, I can vividly remember, actually, us lining up but in front of this wall, and, uh, and I remember I was always one of the last ones standing up against the wall. Okay, so there's two left. Uh, okay, well then, one go to that team, one go to that team. Or one left, well, uh, we've got equal numbers here. Um, who wants them? Like, and uh, it was just an awkward moment. And so you're picked in those times, you're picked because of what you could give to the team, and obviously until I couldn't bring too much to the team, which they're probably fair enough, right? But I can really bring much to the team. Um, and so that's how the, 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 the team picking went in my day. Um, I vowed to never ever do that, by the way, just so if you're ever picking teams for anything, I'll never do that. But in, in Joshua 2, uh, we're going to see some, something completely different, because Jesus' method of picking teams or picking his team is completely different from ours. And it's not based on what we can bring to the table. It's simply based on Jesus and his grace. And we'll see this in the life of Rahab. Now, the context of Joshua chapter 2 here, um, Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, they've now come to the Jordan. They're right on the brink of um, entering into this promised land that God had promised them, right across the Jordan. But right in front of them lies this hugely fortified walled city called Jericho. Now, this isn't the first time they've been there because if we rewind about 40 years before that, the Israelites were standing in exactly the same point, looking at exactly the same city under the leadership of Moses. And Moses sent in 12 spies to spy out the land. So you maybe have sang the song with the spies, right? So 10 were bad, two were good. So he sent in these 12 spies to spy out the land. The spies went in, came back. 10 of them brought this... Uh, probably in some ways an, uh, uh, an accurate report, but they also spread so much fear in amongst the Israelites. They said, oh, we can never do this. We'll never be able. They are so much stronger and bigger and powerful than us. There's no way we'll be able to beat them. No, we cannot do this. And it got so bad that the Israelites, the whole, this, this spread throughout all of Israel, and the whole of Israel were started to moan against Moses. They oh, what are we doing? Why did you bring us here? It would have been better if we were back in Egypt. It should have been, we're, our life was better there. And God punished them for their unbelief and disobedience, and he punished them by causing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died off. 
the whole generation, apart from two people, apart from one, one of the two spies, one of which was Caleb, and the other spy was called Joshua. And so now, zoom 40 years on, now that Joshua is now leading the Israelites. He's now the captain. He's the leader. Moses has died. And now that Joshua, that one spy, has now taken over. And Joshua now sends in two spies this time. Now, I don't know exactly why. We're going uh, to maybe talk a bit about this a bit later on. But could it be a Joshua thought? Flip. 12 was one of the last times, disaster. You know when you ever have to make a decision about something? The less people you can have in the room trying to make a decision, the better. Well, maybe he just thought, let's just send in two this time. Anyway, he sent in two spies, and um, when these two spies went into uh, Jericho in undercover, couldn't let on who they were, otherwise they would have been killed. Uh, when they first went in, they were obviously going to look for somewhere to stay. And so they come to this house of a woman called Rahab. Um, Rahab was, uh, had obviously run in some sort of a lodging place. So we're not exactly sure of the details, but some sort of a lodging place, probably a place where um, sort of traveling traders would have came in and out of the city. They would have came here, stayed, stayed for a while, and carried out their business in the town, and then in the city, and then left again. But the spy's plan was very soon interrupted. So it looks like they didn't really get to spy out the land really at all. And so their plan was interrupted early on. Somebody had found out they were spies. They went and told the king. The king then commands to send an army to go to the house of Rahab and capture these men. So they come to the house of Rahab, knock on the door, and um, said, uh, there's two spies here. Send them out. Now, in this moment, the whole story takes a complete shift now. It takes a complete turn, unexpected turn, because what you would normally expect is Rahab's there, the king, these soldiers are here, there's two spies in the house, and she doesn't even realize they're two spies, and so, yeah, of course, go in there and get them. I don't want them in my house. But instead, Rahab says, oh, two spies, I didn't realize there were two spies. Um, yeah, no, they were here, yeah, but they've gone now. Uh, yeah, at night time, whenever it got dark, they actually went out through the gates and fled, so you better go in quickly and get them. Completely fabricated story. Because meanwhile, she had hid them in the roof of her house. Now, this, this, the question would, would be, why, why would Rahab do something like this? This was such a risky thing to do, because... Hiding spies would have been the ultimate act of treason. Can you imagine the punishment that would have been for someone who was found out as hiding spies, spies who wanted to come and defeat that, that city? And so she was putting everything at risk here, her life at risk. Why did she do this? Well, if you have your Bible open in Joshua 2, we'll just read a few verses that Ali read again. Look at verse 8. Says, behold, the men lay down. Before the men lay down, she, Rahab, came up to the roof, to them on the roof, and said to them, "I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when He came, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, 
He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Something has happened here. Yes, Rahab has started to hear stories about stuff that has happened to the Israelites. She's starting to hear these stories, probably from the people that came and stayed in her establishment. She started to hear these stories that, hang on, that, that, did you hear what happened to the Israelites? Did you hear what happened to the Red Sea? Like, apparently, the Red Sea just like went against, whoosh, and they parted along and dragged around, and the Philistines, they were like, drowned. And then do you hear about that strong army, the Amorites? They, they defeated them, like, in such a powerful way. And she started to hear these things, and she's not the only one that's heard them because actually there's loads of other people. She kept saying, when we heard it, our hearts melted. And so there's loads of people here that have heard this. This has been spread throughout the city that this is happening. But something different has happened here with Rahab that hasn't happened to anybody else. Because Rahab goes on to say, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. This is a huge thing for Rahab to say because in that city, the religion that city, they would have had multiple false gods, and they definitely did not believe in the one true God. And so what has happened here is God has broken into, and into the life of Rahab, and he has given her a faith, a faith to believe in him in the midst of her situation. And now she trusts God more than she trusts anything else or anyone else around her. She trusts him enough to risk her whole life. And so this is what has happened. And so um, she hides the men and she asks the men, she says to the men, okay, well, um, here's the thing. If you, um, I, I'm going to rescue you here. If I rescue you, will you please, will you then save my family? Whenever you come to attack, will you, will you save me and my family? And so they make this deal and the men agreed and they told her, okay, well, whenever we come to attack, I want you to tie a scarlet robe. So she lived in a wall. Her house was, it says, was in the wall. So probably one of the walls of, of her house formed part of the, the wall of the city as well. And she probably out through the window hung, she says, hang this scarlet cord out through. So whenever we're circling your city, we'll know, all right, that's the house. And we can signal that's the house there that we need to save the people in. And so they do this. And later on in Joshua 6, when we read of the battle actually happening, this is what happened. The Israelites came, they conquered, and, but Rahab and her household were spared. These were the only people spared in that city. The only people. So how does this then connect the genealogy of Jesus? Because that's obviously what we're looking at in this series. Well, Rahab um, is then, um, she's rescued uh, but she's not just rescued, she's actually fully accepted into the nation of Israel, and she ends up marrying a man called Salmon. Right, Salmon and her then had a son called Boaz. Boaz then had a, and Ruth had a son called Obed, who had a son called Jesse, who had a son called David, King David. And so here we have Rahab, who is a great-great-grandmother of King David, and we know that it was through the line of David that Jesus is born. And so there's, there's a few things that stand out in this story that I want us to look at. There's a few extraordinary things, I think, that stand out in this story that, that for me, elevate and highlight Jesus, that shine an even brighter light on Jesus and his grace. Here, here's the first one. Here's how I have worded it. There's no walls too hard for God to break through. Now, that might seem a bit of a, a sort of a cliche, but... When I'm talking about the walls, I'm not actually talking about the physical walls that broke down here. 
I'm not speaking about the walls of Jericho, Jericho that came crumbling down after they walked around it seven times. There was an even bigger, bigger breakthrough that happened here, an even more miraculous breakthrough that happened sometime before that. Let's think a bit about Rahab and where she was living in. So here's Rahab living in um, a nation um, that was, well, we could say it's godless, but actually there's many gods, but none of them are actually the one true God. She has never been exposed to any kind of teaching on the one true God and Yahweh. She's living in a 100% pagan culture. So this, isn't, this city isn't like cities, modern cities nowadays, where you have like multi-faith cities. You know, you could go to this part of the city over here and you could find like, you know, a mosque. And you could go to this side of the city and you could find like a temple. You go over to that part of the city and you can find like a church building there. You go to that part of the city and you can find like a different church building and a different church building. Right? It's not that type of city where you could kind of sort of dabble in different religions or find out a wee bit about this. She didn't have the internet. She didn't have Facebook. She didn't have any tweets coming through. She had nothing. She lived within this fortified walled city. In fact, it was a double walled city. There was a wall within a wall. Nobody getting in, nobody getting out. There wasn't like, it wasn't as if it was like 90% pagan and 10% Christian or even 99% pagan and say maybe 1% or a small percentage of people were actually faithful followers of God. This was a 100% pagan city. And we know that because whenever we zoom forward to the rescue, nobody else was rescued in this city. We read about how the Israelites come in and they killed every, everybody, adult and child, everybody in this city was just destroyed apart from Rahab. She was the only one. And so she, she's sort of living here and almost being held captive within this like fortress of sin. Her, she's got a lifestyle here. The lifestyle that she was living was anything from wholesome. And yet here we have God stepping into the middle of all of that in a miraculous way. He just walks into the middle of that in a miraculous way. And he gives her, he whispers into her ear and he gives her this faith. He breathes this faith directly into her so that she can believe in him. It wasn't, it wasn't as if... Um, it, it looks like God has done this, obviously, all by himself. We know that God gives faith all by himself, but it wasn't as if these two spies come in, and they come in like almost with a Bible under one arm, and they come into the house, and they started to evangelize her, they started to teach her the Scripture, and then their eyes were open, and she had faith. It seems like a plausible thing to, to happen, but that's not what happened here, because she had this faith way before they even arrived. She already had this faith in God. Yes, she had heard the stories of God's power at work from rumors and stories that were coming in, coming to her from people who stayed in her house. Um, but there was loads of other people who heard them stories as well, and the same thing didn't happen to them. And so in the midst of this dark, dark situation that you see Rahab living in, God speaks in and God breathes in. God had God had, already, God had already broken through these walls of the city before he, they ever come crumbling down. And he brought faith into a woman living in sin within a city of sin that was surrounded by two walls. And for us, when I read this, the lesson for us in this is um, there's, there's, no, there's no culture there's no culture that's too hard for God to break into. 
right? There's no, um, and no doubt, there's generational sin in Rahab's life. But here, there's no generational sin that's too dark for God to shine his light into. There's no obstacle that's too hard for God to break down. There, there's nothing that's too hard. God simply sees obstacles as opportunities for him to showcase his power and his grace. And so there's nothing too hard for God. I love this because it just highlights that God alone came into Rahab's life. God alone brought faith into her life, and nothing could stop her, not, the, not, her, not her, her lifestyle, um, not her, her family background, not this double-walled city, not this sinful, pagan, godless culture. Nothing could stop God. God just swoops in and gives faith where he chooses to give faith. And so for us, are there people, like, is there, are there people that you can think of and, and, and you just think, oh, I, just, I just can't, I can't see it. I, I know I have people that I can think of, and I'm, I, you suddenly just despair. You just think, I just don't know how on earth they could ever come to faith. And maybe there's people and you think, oh, they're just too, they're just too isolated from the gospel. Like, they have just nobody around them that's able to feed the gospel into them. There's just, there's, there's just no hope. While, whilst it's commanded of God, and we have to be careful of this, don't we? Because God's primary way of evangelizing the world, world is through the church. And so God commands us to proclaim the gospel, and we should want to proclaim the gospel, and we should look at it for every opportunity to proclaim the gospel. But ultimately, faith and salvation is, lies in God's hands, and He will do what He will do. And so in those times, whenever we think it's too hopeless, there is no way that that person could be saved. Look at the lifestyle they're involved in. Look, look at the family they're in. Look at the culture they live in. Look where they live. They're so isolated. How on earth could God speak into that? Well, we have an example of how God can do it here. And thankfully, God doesn't change. So there's no wall that's too hard for God to break through. Secondly, there's no sin that's beyond God's redemption. Now, Rahab here, Rahab is named here, and she's also named in the New Testament where they talk about her as Rahab the prostitute. Now, we're not sure, we're not sure at this point if Rahab is still involved in this type of lifestyle. So we're not fully sure. Some would say that, um, well, no, she, she probably, probably was involved in that, but then when she came to this faith in God, then she gave that, probably gave that up, and now she's probably just running a lodging, a place of lodging for people who came, and that could be plausible. The fact that she had flax on her roof, that she had the men, would maybe suggest that she was maybe using that and selling that. We're not really sure. Some people may say that, well, maybe she still was involved in prostitution, um, because she still hadn't been taught Scripture. She hadn't been discipled. And, and sometimes wrongly what we do as Christians, when somebody comes to faith, we expect everything to change in their life immediately. But that can take years. And so maybe Rahab has this sort of faith in God, but she hasn't had any teaching of Scripture. She hasn't had any teaching on the law. She hasn't had any teaching on God's morals versus their morals. And so maybe she just is almost like caught in this in this, this life of sin and doesn't really fully realize even how sinful it is. Maybe, but either way, 
this is what she was most commonly known as. And so we know that this has at least formed a significant part of her story, the fact that she is Rahab the prostitute. And so here we have this woman. When these spies came, it's not as if she had any, she didn't have any kind of bargaining chip. She had nothing to, to, to offer by way of bargaining chip, right? She couldn't say, well, you know, if, if you rescue me, here's what I could bring to your community. Here's what I could bring. Because she, she didn't have anything to bring. Right? All she had was a life of brokenness and sin. That's all she had to offer. No doubt it was a life of, um, where she was used and abused and violated. She had a life where um, she was Rahab. She was Rahab the prostitute. She had the stigma attached to her name that just was almost impossible to shift. It's a stigma that no family or nation will want associated with them. She had nothing to offer here, only a life of ruin. Surely, when you look at this, you think, surely, God, there's somebody better. You can, if you're going to choose one person from a city, like, I'm sure, surely there's somebody else that's a bit more credible than this girl. Surely there's someone else that can bring more to the table than this girl. Surely there's somebody that's going to be less hassle than this girl. Surely there's somebody else, God, rather than this girl who lives in the city walls and who's got this stigma attached to her, has got all of this baggage, and she's going to bring all of that with her. Surely there's somebody else. Surely God would have been better choosing somebody else. Well, no, he wouldn't have been, because God, when God looked in this city, he's seen them all. He's seen them all as empty, destitute, sinful, dead sinners in need of a Savior. And so why not choose her? Why, why choose someone else over her? God doesn't save us because of what we bring to the table, and I am so thankful. Imagine if God only saved us based on what we could bring to the table. Like, that just wouldn't be, that be some table. My goodness. But God doesn't do that. And so if you're here, or if you're listening online, and you've got a past that's filled with sin and shame, and you feel worthless and you feel unworthy, maybe you feel that your past is so broken that there's just no way God would be interested in you. Or, you, or at best you think, well, he might be interested in me, but he's way more interested in those people over there that have got a far less colorful background than I have. Then can I please tell you that in love that you're wrong? That's, when you look at this account, you can see how wrong we are. Look at this account of Rahab and find hope. Find hope in the fact that God broke through walls to get to this girl. This mission, this mission wasn't a spy mission at all, actually. Because think about it. I asked the question at the start, I wonder why Rahab, I wonder why Joshua decided to send and why God decided to ultimately send in two spies this time when he sent 12 the last time. Well, when the 12 went in the first time, 
there's a record of them having gone around all these different areas in the, in the city. Obviously, they're coming to spy this city, and so they, they had 12 spies, probably dispersed all throughout the city. But these two, it looks like they never go past this house. See, the, uh, for me, this isn't a spy mission. For me, this is a rescue mission. This is God sending two men in to rescue one girl. And so it's not a spy mission at all. The story of Rahab here is such a beautiful picture of, of God's purpose of grace in human history. This is God taking the outsiders, the unqualified, and using them for his redemptive purpose. And you know what shows us even more? Whenever she, um, whenever Rahab is rescued, and she comes and she, she lives in, the, in with the Israelites, and she becomes integrated as part of the Israelites, but she marries a man called Salmon, we said. Salmon's father was a man called Nation. Nation was one of the men who was assigned as leader of the tribe of Judah. And so actually, what happens here is Rahab ends up marrying a prince. <laughs> There's the irony of nothing else of that, that you've got this destitute sinner who could not for a second imagine that a God would be interested in her with all her baggage. And God lifts her out of that sin, brings her out of it, redeems her, and um, sets her up with a prince. And this girl then becomes part of the line of the Messiah, part of the line of Jesus. And so her blood was in Jesus. How amazing is this story? There's just so much that's good about this. God had such great plans for Rahab, and he took her broken past and redeemed it and made it into something beautiful. There's no walls that's too hard for God to break through. There's no sin that's beyond God's redemption. And then finally, there's no one in God's family of whom he is ashamed. Imagine if you had someone like Rahab as so part of your family. We all, and we've, all got, we've all got those in our family, right? I'm sure. And uh, they're, they're the person that you don't really want to talk about. Or, and, uh, or if you're at an event, it's kind of you see them coming and you're like, oh, look me, there's uncle. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, and, uh, and then somebody said, oh, is, is, that, is he your... Uh, no, 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 don't know him. Now, we've got the people that we don't want to really associate too much with because of, for whatever reason. Well, imagine, imagine if you had someone like Rahab as part of your family. Right? Imagine if you had someone like Rahab who had this banner over her life. It's Rahab, prostitute. Would you be, um, would you think, would there be an inclination in us to sort of maybe not draw much attention to the fact that she's part of our family? I, I think there would be. I think it would be a bit like, we certainly wouldn't be um, mentioning what she was involved in. Well, with God, there's no shame. How do we know there's no shame? Well, 
out of all the people that God could have mentioned, out of all the people he could have mentioned, he mentions Rahab in the New Testament three times. He mentions her in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. And he, in the genealogy, surely God could have just said, just went down through highlighting the men as he did before. He could have just said, you know, um, Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Boaz, blah, blah, blah. But he, he, he purposefully injects Rahab into this. Salmon, the father of Boaz, of, to Rahab. See, God isn't ashamed here to mention her in his family line at all. Later then in Hebrews, we read again of Rahab being mentioned, and she's highlighted here because of her faith. There's, surely there's multiple people God could have chose to have in that Hebrews 11, you know, hall of faith. Surely there's other, like, it could have put Job in there. I mean, by faith, Job. There's lo- loads of things. Like, like Job's, a, in our eyes, is kind of a bit of one of those Old Testament heroes. Surely he could have put Job in there. But he, he didn't. This isn't just accidental. God purposefully mentioned Rahab in there. And then he goes on and mentions her again in James. And in James, he mentions her as being one of those people. James uses her as an example of someone who, um, whose faith was demonstrated as being genuine by her works. And so as if God is just keeps on using her, this girl keeps on using her. He keeps on highlighting her. He keeps on bringing her to our attention. And he doesn't just say, oh, Rahab. He calls her then the same name, Rahab the prostitute. There's no shame with God. God is not ashamed of his children. No matter what the baggage is in the background, God has no shame. And it's the same for us. God is not ashamed of us. Even though there is a myriad of reasons why he should be ashamed. It doesn't mean that he's saying it's okay, all our sin is okay. It's nothing to do with that. It's because our sin has been covered with the blood of Christ. Now when he looks at us, he sees Christ in us. And so now he looks at us, and so that's why he's not ashamed. He doesn't look at us and look at our sin. He looks at us and looks at Jesus. He looks, sees Jesus in us. And so he's not ashamed to call us his own. And so no matter what your baggage is or my baggage is, no matter what my background is, God is not looking and sort of thinking, oh, yeah, he's saved. Oh, but there's all this other stuff as well that went on. So, uh, ooh. No, he just sees us as his children. For us today, if you're not a Christian, or if you know people that aren't Christians, God, um, God hasn't just, and this is for us as believers as well, God, God hasn't just broken through walls to rescue us. God has actually broken his son to rescue us. He has crushed his son in a more um, horrific and powerful way than he crushed those walls. So Isaiah tells us that um, his son was crushed, that God crushed his son for us. That's how much he wanted us. That's how much he desires to have us as part of his family. And it doesn't matter what the background is, because we've all got baggage. We've all got a background of sin. We're all born in sin and shape and iniquity. So we're all an equal playing field. And God in that moment says, I, I, I'm coming to rescue you from that. I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to give you a life of hope. I'm going to, going to give you a life of eternal life with me in the new world. And so God 
has broken his own son so that we could be part of his family. And for us who are believers, hold on to the hope that this passage gives us. Right? There is no situation that is too difficult for God to move in. And I'm trying to preach this to myself because I look at family members or maybe in those situations where you're praying for, um, doing your praying for another nation that just seems like, oh, it's just too far gone. How, how could, I mean, how on earth could God step into that? But God has said, no, where, where God is alive and where God is, there always is hope. And if he has a plan to inject faith into an individual or into a group of people or into a family, irrespective of where they are, what their surroundings are, or how dark the situation seems, if he has a plan to do that, then he will do that. And that's where we find our hope. Don't lose hope in God and what he can do and what he can do in the darkest situations. Let me pray for us. God, there is just um, there's just so much hope in this passage, and we see your faithfulness in this passage. We see your love displayed in this passage. We see your grace demonstrated in this passage. We see that unconditional love of yours. God, we see how you use those of us who maybe feel the most unuseful. Sometimes, God, that, God that's the very person that you love to use. Because then all praise and all glory goes to you and not to us or our abilities. God, thank you for saving Rahab. Because through her line then came our Messiah came Jesus into this world. God, thank you for ever orchestrating that plan, that rescue mission. Thank you for ever orchestrating your rescue mission to the world, even though we don't deserve it. God, will you help us to find our hope in you? For those who do not yet have hope in you, and who have maybe heard about you, God, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, through that same power that was at work in Rahab's life, I pray that, God, that you will breathe into their life hope now and faith to believe and trust in you, to repent of sin and turn away from sin and turn to you, God. Will you save even now as we are sitting here praying? God, will you work the miraculous work of salvation in hearts right now? God, thank you for the work you've done in our lives. Help us to be people who are ever thankful for your grace and mercy to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In this um, account, as we'd said, there's part of it where the men ask um, Rahab to hang the scarlet cord out of the window, and that was going to be the sign that they were to um, rescue who was in that house. Now, there's, there's loads of 
different things that people try to pull from the, that, that sort of idea of the chord. But you can't look at this and not see sort of a reflection of Passover in this. Do you remember the Passover when the, the, they, were, they were brought out of Egypt? Israel were brought out of Egypt. Do you remember that last plague where God said he'd kill all the firstborn? And there was a death angel going to pass through the city. And what did he say to the death angel? The death angel was to pass over what? Pass over any of those houses that had their doorpost painted red with the blood of the lamb. And when that angel passed over, um, it, it, if anybody had that, it was a signal, signal or signified that within that household, there was a faith in God. They trusted God, and so that's why they obeyed. They demonstrated their faith in God by obeying him and painting the doorposts. And so anyone within that house was saved. And so now you have this moved on sort of 40-odd years later, and now you have this same thing enacted again. Anybody that was in that house that was signaled by that red cord that was hanging from the, hanging from the, hanging from the window, anybody within that house was going to be saved. He asked the, Joshua asked the armies to pass over that house, and anyone in it. And so anyone that came into that house was Rahab in it and her family, but they had to enter that house by faith. Right? They had to believe that the Israelites would pass over that house, and so it was an act of faith, and so anyone in that house was saved through faith. And now zoom on to us here. So now we're about to do um, almost like celebrate almost like a Passover as well, but we're not sort of looking, looking back. We're, we're not looking forward, we're looking back. We're looking back to Jesus being the ultimate lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb who came and died, not for anybody who was in a house, but anyone who was in his house, right? Anyone who put their faith and trust in him. And so as we sit here, God's judgment has passed over us. For everyone else in that city, apart from Rahab and her family, God's judgment did not pass over them. And we later read how they came in and they destroyed that city and they burnt it. And so, for us, we're rescued from that punishment of God simply because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's through us putting our faith in what Jesus has done, his finished work on the cross, that now God's judgment passes over us. And so that's why this moment here, uh, it's, it's almost like a, cel it's a celebration, but it's like a humble celebration because it's nothing to do with us. It's all to do with Jesus. And so use this time Let's use this time together as a body to celebrate and thank Jesus for what he has done for us in passing over our sin and making us part of his secure family.